Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome. Like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Welcome to Jerusalem Unplugged, the only podcast dedicated to Jerusalem, its history, and its people. Your host, Roberto Matza, will bring you guests discussing their relationship with the Holy City. A journey through history, society, feelings, and hopes for the future. Follow the podcast on all social media platforms at Jerusalem Unplugged. Welcome to Jerusalem Unplugged, the podcast dedicated to Jerusalem, its history, and its people. I'm your host, Roberto Mazza, and today it's with great pleasure that my guest is Professor Karen Sanchez. Karen has been a friend for a long time, but here in this context, uh, she's an associate professor at uh, the University of Leiden in the Netherlands, and it's going to take me some time to actually say all of the areas into which she's an expert of, Arab Christianity. European missionaries in the Middle East and certainly in Palestine and Jerusalem, history of a contemporary Middle East, linguistics, minorities, and of course, Jerusalem and Palestine. Now, if you ever browse our website, the list of publication is vast. So I just want to focus on a few because I think they're very important and particularly uh, relevant to the question of Jerusalem and Palestine. And one is an edited work by Karen and Sari Zananariri, who was a previous guest of a podcast, Imaging and Imagining Palestine, Photography, Modernity, and Biblical Lens, 1918-1948, which is uh, published by Leiden, is open access. And as well, another edited work, uh, again, by Karen and Sari, European Cultural Diplomacy and Arab Christians in Palestine, 1918-1948. And uh, I'm happy to say that I contributed with a chapter on Italian cultural diplomacy. Now, many of the other articles are really dealing with the question of languages and uh, religious uh, institutions, mostly Christians and Catholic institutions in Palestine and Jerusalem. Now, after this introduction, Karen, welcome. Thank you very much, Professor, for welcoming me. Karen, the first question I have is, Given you're a polyglot and you have so many interests in the Middle East and in history, I was wondering, how did you get to work on Palestine and Jerusalem? Mm -hmm. That's a very long story, but to answer 
quickly today, I would say, I think it's first, it's a Madeleine of Proust for me. <laughs> I was uh, visiting Jerusalem when I was young uh, with my parents and then they divorced. So I think this marked me. And we were staying in the old city in the neighborhood of Bab Hutta. So I think I took back with me this image. And when I decided to study at the university, I, I never thought I would become historian, but I, um, I was always very interested by languages. I was living with my grandparents in the south of France, Rivesalt, not very far away from the Caen, the Rivesalt. And I had some friends who came from Algeria. And so talking with them about this language, I hesitated between medicine, neurology, and history, and I ended up doing history. And then I met wonderful professors in Montpellier who pushed me in the direction of Middle Eastern uh, studies. And so I wanted to, of course, uh, learn uh, Arabic better than what I knew a little bit. And then they pushed me to learn Hebrew. And so I decided to go back when I was uh, 17 and then 18. And every year I went back. I always went to the old city, mainly around Bapota, uh, but then also near the new gate I rented. And so I think um, I was then attracted, I think, by, um, by languages, that's for sure, but also many layers to understand the relational history, I think. And so um, I took on, you know, um, PhD trajectory with uh, Nadine Picodou in Sorbonne at that time. Um, my idea was to work on urban space. So my approach of J Jerusalem is also coming from my knowledge of uh, Hebron, actually, and Khalil because my first PhD with Nadine, and then I, she, well, uh, she had a health issue, and then I moved on with uh, Bernard Héberger, um, dealt with missionary studies and the challenges of a relational history of missionaries in the district of Hebron during the British mandate. So this was the first uh, PhD. And of course, I had to deal with the linguistic issue um, humanitarianism, schooling, but of course, I was very much interested by uh, the Okaf uh, archives. And so I lived in Hebron during um, several months and so years because I was based both in Jerusalem and uh, Hebron. So for me, you know, the, rela the relational paradigm, but also the regional one was very uh, important from the very beginning. And then I opened up working in uh, the Nablus archives as well. So I would say my approach to Jerusalem was first uh, regional and always relational. But of course, um, I think I was there uh, tw 2002 uh, when I stayed several years until 2006. And so it was in the middle of the second intifada. So it was a very tense situation. Um, so my Jerusalem um, is a Jerusalem, you know, on a very micro level around Bab Hutta 
and the new gate, for example. But it's also um, revisiting all these um, places um, via the, the, the narratives of people I was living with. Um, so to give you one example, I spent several uh, months with um, Regina Canetti, so it's the, the cousin of Elias Canetti. She is a sister of um, uh, Zion's sister, and she introduced me uh, to another sister, and we spent many weeks in the archives together speaking. And so I, of course, I saw uh, the neighborhood and Bapata also through their eyes, um, and we discussed uh, all uh, levels, you know, different scales in in the neighborhood during the mandate and then during the 67 war. But I think I can say to conclude with your, uh, well, your difficult question, because I think I don't have uh, one perception of Jerusalem. I have many. Uh, I think I very much identify with uh, Jerusalem and uh, I'm living in the Netherlands since many years, I think 16 years now, 15. Um, there's only one uh, city I miss, and it's uh, Jerusalem. I don't miss any other place. And I have to add, of course, I also miss Hebron. So both are linked in my mind, my perception, my uh, living as an historian uh, there. Um, and it's only since COVID that I didn't go back uh, every, every year. So now two years and a half. I guess many people would be surprised to hear that you miss Jerusalem and Hebron, two very complex and complicated cities compared to Leiden, which is uh, the image of a, a very quiet place indeed, where you can bike and walk essentially everywhere. You mentioned something very interesting, which is the New Gate. Now, the New Gate, for those who don't know much about the city of Jerusalem, is a tiny little entrance that gives access to the old city essentially into the Christian quarter, particularly sort of a Catholic area of the Christian quarter. But more importantly, the new gate is essentially in front of one of the most important uh, French institution in Jerusalem, which is Notre Dame. And that brings me to ask a question about your very, very early work. When you start writing about the question of languages and particularly the question of a French language in Palestine and in Jerusalem, as you were looking into uh, uh, educational institutions like Le Collège des Frères de la Salle, mm -hmm. or, you know, in general, the question of the competition between languages. So I was mm -hmm. wondering if you can just give us a sense which languages were spoken in Jerusalem and Palestine and how languages competed with each other in this environment. Yeah, I started with this, um, with the question of the language, uh, because working on the first PhD, I, I was teaching French, uh, and I had many students from uh, Bethlehem, and I realized that these uh, archives in the Collège des Frères were not at all well preserved at that time, and I participated to um, a project with CNRS on uh, uh, making history, making archives uh, by Christine Jungen. And it was fascinating to work on the material aspect also of archives 
and how we can write when sometimes we're missing archives in the case of the, the Palestinian history, but also other types of uh, history in the case of Palestine, Jerusalem. So the question of um, the cultural diplomacy, uh, I was discussing at that time with uh, Dominique Trambure. So I knew that we knew the political aspect of the presence of France, but in these archives, I was very struck by few homework in Arabic I found with a lot of problems of humidity. And these um, homework were dealing with the aspect and they were written in Arabic, but the word came back, la patrie. And I thought to myself, there is something about French. And then I did some oral history for several months. And then a whole history of this college came up via textual archives, but also photographies. And I found out uh, that this linguistic history um, had not been written as such. So I was, I think at that time, as interested by how these mainly Arab Palestinians, uh, Muslim and Christians of different uh, uh, groups uh, manage with uh, French, but also how friends envisage uh, the presence of all these uh, missionaries at a transnational, you know, regional uh, level uh, within this cultural agenda uh, in Palestine. And so this linguistic battle was, I found out, very harsh between Italian, French, and other, I mean, Russian, obviously, before 1917. So what is interesting in this uh, language uh, aspects, in the case of France, it's, of course, this idea of Chrétien d'Orient. So this idea of a public opinion buying the narrative of the protection of the Christians of the Middle East. And I started to deconstruct that on this much disputed zone. And then looking into German archives in German, of, for example, the German Archaeological Institute, but also uh, the archives of Ecole Biblique and all these schools that preserve their archives very locally. So they never sent back to France uh, their archives. And because we were in the middle of the second intifada, I think there was a need of sharing that from this perspective. So it was a bit easier. I found out that there, there was not only a cultural diplomacy, I mean, in both uh, uh, direction, but also a language diplomacy. So there were um, demand and offer. And so I started to deconstruct that in this paradigm of a so-called Holy Land. Um, so why the battle was harsh and how um, this translated on the ground, you know, for, for France at that time, there's no doubt uh, for the public opinion, Palestine remains even after the beginning of the British mandate, uh, they call that in French, the most uh, French land of the Orient. 
And so starting with that and looking at uh, you know, top-down archives, let's say, from uh, the consulate, the government, but also um, a more bottom-up approach with uh, archives from alumni, uh, archives from families, well, and cross-analyzing them with different uh, European archives, both private and official, plus, of course, uh, archives from religious institutions like the Latin Patriarchate, Custodia di Terra Santa. Then we realized that there were a whole agenda via schooling, but also a need of what we could mention as an alter langue. So something that is not English, and at that time in the archives, we see that Arab Palestinians, for several of them, are qualifying English as the language of occupation, for example. Some of them are not buying the narrative of uh, France being the protector of Christians of the Middle East. Some do. But there is a very emotional um, load on this uh, in this linguistic battle. So I wanted to deconstruct the the value of spreading a language for some of these actors and mastering it and using it, well, for some of them, as we know, um, to promote, for example, the Arab cause. But once you dig into the language aspect, um, I would like to give another example of this uh, end of uh, Ottoman Jerusalem. I was reworking recently on Albert Antebi's uh, French archives in uh, Alliance Israelite Universelle. And then you realized how um, via language you can tackle the porous boundaries of cultural identification, actually. And so um, what we see in the IU archives from Albert Antebi is that language. Um, is molding his uh, conceptual uh, perception of what is a nation, for example, um, but also agency. So he is resisting the French in any aspect, and at the same time, he's embodying some of this um, language of civilization, uh, question mark, of the French. So, Via language, my idea, and I will finish uh, with that, it was to, I think I can express that this way. I wanted to go beyond a lacrimose uh, history of these uh, Arab uh, Christians from Palestine, but also, in a sense, I think, going beyond this colonial cultural agent from a missionary point of view, and a kind of Vatican narrative, but also a Zionist narrative, for example, in the case of uh, Albert Antibi. Well, it's a bit long, but... <laughs> uh, so the, the, to conclude, I would say that um, the British mandate period correspond to a very harsh linguistic battle where you have on one side uh, French uh, understanding very well they are losing, this battle, British who start to understand that they need to invest 
more in cultural activities and the British Council will only be open in 1935. I'm now working uh, on an article on that. The idea via language is as ambitious as that is to bring peace to Palestine. So both of them are looking into a very political uh, approach via uh, language. And then you have, of course, many actors. I mean, um, if we take, for example, the influence of the Schmidt Schule, so it's a, it's a school for girls uh, next to the Damascus Gate, until today they enroll many uh, Palestinian girls that are uh, very active. I mean, uh, women involved in uh, Arab-Palestinian uh, nationalism also came from the Schmidt Schule. Then you realize that there is also a linguistic uh, agenda uh, with very specific archives where you see, for example, the Schmidt uh, sisters writing at the beginning of the 30s, even the 20s, actually. German is a forbidden language, of course, after First World War. So they're writing in German and some of them in current, so the very old uh, German. Well, we cannot transmit German, but we have the task to transmit German values that are the values for Arab Christians in Palestine via English language. So digging into language, you have a, a, a wide range of identification uh, elements. So I think this is why I was uh, fascinated by, uh, by this approach. Ironically, German became uh, the most popular language in one part of Jerusalem after the 1930s, when all of the uh, German Jews eventually migrated to, to Palestine. So eventually it, it came back. But I have a question about uh, languages in general. I mean, it's quite clear that in Jerusalem, due to the presence of, uh, during the mandate of British institutions, missionary schools, the Zionist movement growing and bringing people from different countries. I was wondering, is there a sense of how many local Jerusalemites actually spoke a second language? And I guess, as you said earlier, French was uh, declining. And, and I guess then English was becoming the most uh, spoken second language. But is there a sense if it was a very common feature for people to speak a second and even a third language or it was only the elites that were engaging with uh, mm. i don't know english or french italian and mm. so forth mm. so that's a very important question indeed uh, we do we cannot measure with exact numbers but we do have many statistics via for example, the school system, but also pilgrims uh, or archives linked to pilgrims uh, that are local archives. So bilingualism as such or diglossia is not something we find except in many uh, elite uh, families. Um, you have to if we take several scale, for example, you have elites going through the new neighborhood uh, in Jerusalem. When the middle class and the elite 
are all mastering at least two languages. But the big question is, to what extent do they master one language? Um, with tourism, it's obvious. We know that many from this middle class, but also much lower social uh, milieu, were mastering an easy conversation with tourists. Now, we do not have an, an accurate you know, view of what was the type of conversation with these people. With elite, we know. I mean, Salon Littéraire were very active. People were reading, commenting. If we check even languages we probably do not expect, we know, I mean, with Taufik Kanan, it's obvious, and all the people around the, the German church, for example, and Sarah worked a lot on that, um, they had a very good level. They were able to read, to speak, to go to Europe uh, and Germany and to promote some of the events for the, the Palestinian cause without any problem. Uh, with French, it's exactly the same. I mean, in I give you a very specific example. Um, in Galilee, there is a, a bishop, uh, Gregorius Adjar. Uh, in the Latin Patriarchate um, archives, there are many archives, so of course written in Arabic, because uh, we know, you know the Melkite position for uh, Arabic language promotion in catechism was very important and it's a very important element of identification in this Catholic Eastern community. But what we do know is that in many parishes in Galilee at that time, people were mastering quite well French because many pilgrims were going there and they were able to have um, very decent conversation. We also have a lot of memoir from these people quoting the name of the family. And with these family names, we know that many of them were not elite. So, I mean, quoting Lior uh, Alperin, Jerusalem is a Babel, you know, but it's not only a Babel uh, in Zion with all this rich linguistic history for Jewish population. We can also try to make a portrait of the linguistic situation for Christian and Muslim population. So Palestinians were multilingual. What we cannot say for sure is to what extent. And we have far less archives, of course, than in the case of some of the Jewish uh, groups. From languages to religious institutions, the gap seems very large, but effectively it's not, because obviously most of the religious institutions in Palestine in Jerusalem were and are run by foreigners. And uh, while we talked with a previous guest, Maria Chiara Rioli, about uh, the Latin Patriarchate of Jerusalem and sort of a Latin presence in the city and Palestine, I would like to ask you something more about uh, the Arab Christians, in particular Arab Catholics, since that's been the focus of your uh, most recent work. Who are mm -hmm. Arab Catholics in Palestine? Who are Arab Catholics in Jerusalem? Very generally, uh, Arab Catholics in Palestine are either Latin Catholic or Melkites or 
what we say Greek Catholics. These are the two main communities. You do have a little bit of Maronite, but if we take these two big communities, Latin and Melkites, we are speaking about around between 10 and 15 uh, percent of some of the neighborhood, for example. Why these two communities and not the other ones? Um, that's a very long uh, question. Uh, and I don't think I can answer uh, quickly to that, but um, mainly the Latin um, were very, very few until 1847, when the Vatican uh, decided to reinstall a Latin patriarchate. Uh, and I guess at some point you might invite Paolo Piracini uh, in this podcast, because he wrote this book on how did the Vatican manage to install this Latin patriarchate, uh, a direct concurrent of the Custodia di Terra Santa. This is the other institution. So Custodia di Terra Santa, as you know better than anyone else, uh, had some uh, schools. And so you have a, a tiny community of Latin Catholics who are not part of the elite. But after the Latin patriarchate is established in Jerusalem, then you have a new type of Catholic elite. Um, I don't know, I'm thinking, for example, of the family of the Alonso. Uh, these people are, for most of them, multilingual. And so you have a Catholic institution trying uh, on one side to guarantee these type of elites that they can be reproduced within you know, the channel that you find anywhere else in the Middle East at that time. And then you have a very poor Catholic population that is also um, mainly enrolled in missionary schools with two completely different type of education proposed uh, different levels in uh, languages. Now, there is a huge gap from a language point of view, but also many uh, identification element, cultural one, and soon uh, national ones. It's the, the Greek Catholic community. So I cannot explain you know, the roots, 1724, uh, these uh, Greek join the, the Roman uh, Catholicism. So we call them Uniat. But what is important for our period is that they are not located in the same places in Palestine. So they are mainly in Galilee and on the coastal zone. And these Melkites are promoting Arabic very much. And so the clergy of the Melkite church jump into the, the promotion of Arab Palestinian nationalism very early on. So that's probably a big difference between these two Catholic uh, communities. Um, for these two communities, um, 
they are part of one group for the Vatican, and these are the Catholics of the Holy Land. So early on in 1917, the Vatican has a policy trying to target on one part, but also answer to, well, many questions these uh, Christians have for the Holy See. And so the Vatican is creating two specific institutions uh, for Oriental congregation within the Vatican to try to answer to these specific Christian communities. So for example, uh, should French or Italian stay the language of catechism or is Arabic the language of God? Is it possible? So you have a, a, a series of debate uh, because of course uh, they are arguing that no Arabic is not only linked to Islam, but it's also linked to the roots of Christianity. So it's not uh, possible to continue to have catechism in uh, French or Italian. So via all these type of archives, we see a very vivid community. And, and these Arab uh, Palestinian Catholics are very much a transnational uh, community as well. And by transnational, we mean, of course, there is uh, Palestinian Arab Christian in Europe at that time, in the Americas, both North and South. Uh, Jacob Norris worked a lot on that, but there is also a lot of movement uh, with uh, the French mandate areas. So today, Lebanon and Syria. And so, for example, you have a Melkite community in Galilee uh, looking into the south of Lebanon much more than to Jaffa. So when we, we envisage these communities, we shouldn't make the mistake to think them within the borders after 48. Of course, with the British mandate and the French mandate, this crossing of the borders at times can become very challenging for these communities, but it's obvious that there is a constant flow between British mandate Palestine, French mandate Lebanon, and people spend their time you know, in summer in Saida or Beirut, come back to leave, uh, near Haifa, everyone knows, for example, like uh, you know, next to the border. So these Christians are very connected and not only for economic uh, reasons and purposes because they are involved in trade or tourism, but also because they are living across these uh, borders uh, at that time. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Ready to pop the question? 
The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. I'm very curious about uh, the, the question of uh, European missionaries, because you earlier mm-hmm. mentioned this language diplomacy. And mm-hmm. uh, we, we can see, like, for instance, with the Vatican, that they began to establish some sort of a religious diplomacy, reopening the Latin patriarchate, uh, supporting to an extent uh, uh, the Melkite community, even though there were certainly internal conflict between the various uh, groups. And I was wondering, what's the role of European missionaries and particularly of Catholics uh, around Palestine in Jerusalem compared, for instance, to Lebanon and Syria? I think the first element is there's no homogeneity. These uh, European missionaries are, you know, French, German, Austrian, Spanish, Italian. They, and they do not evolve the same way during the whole mandate. So it's a very heterogeneous group. Uh, some are, are challenging, you know, the concept of the Holy Land uh, much further than others. Um, So if we take only schools, I think the second element is to be fair with this heterogeneity, but also to try to envisage the relational history of these missionaries. Um, For several years, I think the missionary history was mainly written via missionary archives, of course, that's over, uh, at least not for apologetic, you know, academic uh, uh, approach. But the problem with that was that you only see one aspect of these missionaries. And we all know that they were asking for money. They were um, arguing that they converted because of economic reason, because of religious reason. So now what is interesting, uh, and there are many colleagues who are working on that, is to have this relational approach and to see how, for example, they position themselves towards uh, Arab nationalism. They were enrolling many 
students um, were they pro I don't know if we take the Collège des Frères French uh, during the whole period uh, did they think they will convert some of the Muslim peoples uh, so these are the questions that come up when you try to compare um, local, uh, I mean, Arabic sources in Arabic about how they were viewed and how they promote themselves in very specific type of archives, but also memoir. And we have quite a lot. And these are opening up. And then you see people evolving in how they qualify even, you know, events or riots or Arabs or Arab Palestinians. So there is a whole change in the qualification. Um, there is also a way of thinking about this territory. Uh, there is also a way of qualifying the notion, for example, of development or Eastern Christianity or religious uh, landscape that is an Arab slash Holy Land slash um, Palestinian uh, landscape. So some of the missionaries, well, you know that <laughs> because you wrote an article, uh, some of these elite missionary like Jusen, a father, a Dominican father, uh, had, well, it was not ambiguous. I mean, they were working for French government. So some of them were, for example, spying during First World War. But then during the period, uh, the interwar period, we see many of them um, getting quite interested by the society they are involved with, uh, phenomenon around them, um, acknowledging a certain identification that would be specific to this land, and at the same time, uh, still um, having you know some of the approach of the beginning of the 20th century about what is an Arab, uh, what education can bring to these uh, societies. So it's a very, I would say, um, complex uh, image of these missionaries and also a deep interest that is going beyond a colonial agent, you know. Um, some do indeed uh, embody the cultural uh, um, colonial agent uh, elements in many aspects. Others are going beyond that. Uh, and then, of course, the real question is, and you see them struggling with that, uh, the loyalty towards a nation, the loyalty towards the Holy See, but also, and we are dealing only with uh, Catholic missionaries now, but also the loyalty to the, the, they don't say society, but communities, Arab communities they are serving. Very few of them are uh, close to Jewish population, but some are. So that's also very interesting. If we take the sisters of uh, Zen, for example, um, the order was you know, uh, created by two Jewish brothers, the brothers of uh, Ratisbon. And then you see many debates 
to what extent they have to continue to aim to convert Jews, how do they manage uh, between a more uh, philanthropic uh, approach to these Jews who are coming uh, or a more religious one. There are many, many discussions going on within these uh, European uh, missionaries. It's a very difficult question. I think I didn't answer uh, fully in the sense that, that um, I think the, the approach is a kind of uh, global micro history. Uh, doing some anthropology about these missionaries from an historical perspective um, is the only way to allow us to understand fully how they were functioning and how they evolved, you know, in this very tiny uh, Jerusalem uh, environment, and at the same time, a very international environment, of course. So the notion of uh, missionary agency is something uh, important. And then there is a big question of their interaction. Of course, this is the, probably the most fascinating one with the local population. And there as well, we see a very heterogeneous uh, group of answers to many phenomena. And if we take probably a very sensitive one, I mean, on top of nationalism and the position of the Holy See, is also the girls' education, for example. They are not at ease with that. Uh, the concurrence of Protestant missionaries is fierce. Uh, concerning the, the girls' education, uh, multilingualism, but at the same time, it's fascinating to see that these Catholic missionaries also were directly involved, whether they liked it or not at that time, into the birth of a very local Catholic order, the Rosary Sisters. So they, the Rosary Sisters are Palestinian, Arab, Catholic, who are getting out of the St. Joseph of the apparition, a French Catholic order, to tackle Palestinian Arab needs and to, to propose an education that would correspond more to this Palestinian Catholicism, to put the Arabic language at the heart of their education. And this is also part of the missionaries because most of them are sent to France uh, for their religious education. And then before they become sister, they are fighting within uh, these policy environment up to the Vatican, arguing that they, they want to be respected as Palestinian Arab Catholic woman giving an education to Arab girls. Um, so there is a colonial uh, um, agenda as well from, for example, the Vatican uh, side and a very strong agency from this woman trying to promote their uh, Arab Catholicism in Palestine for Palestinian using, of course, uh, all the, the administrative and religious 
apparatus in order to be recognized. And I think that eventually this process, particularly talking about women and girls, reached mm -hmm. uh, so to the top when Pope Francis, just a few years back, canonized uh, these two mm -hmm. Palestinian nuns. Yeah. Um, yeah. Exactly, mm -hmm. Alfonsin Gattas and uh, Mariam mm -hmm. Bawardi, right? If I if I yeah. if I remember yep. right, That's the names. Correct. Yeah. Who, yeah. who yeah. lived, uh, you know, in Ottoman rule Palestine across this period of time. So I think it was obviously a long process, but one that brought eventually uh, results mm -hmm. also for the local community to be acknowledged beyond uh, just being part of the picture of Jerusalem, but being active agents of, of that particular church. And there's another part of what you were saying that it's fascinating. And I think a lot of listeners may be familiar with, but also many may not. That in fact, when we talk about Catholics in Palestine, in Jerusalem, this is a such a diverse community that it's very hard to define because essentially you have nationalities. And, you know, the example of the, uh, uh, of the custody of the Holy Land is, is a good one where, all of nationalities are represented in that institution and also of local constituents. And I guess you were right to start this discussion about what about the local Arabs? How do they relate to, uh, you know, sort of the, the other Catholics coming over? Which brings me to the mm -hmm. question of cultural diplomacy. You mm -hmm. co-authored this very important book about cultural diplomacy in Palestine, uh, which includes a lot of articles and chapters about Jerusalem. And... Uh, you know, when we think about diplomacy, obviously we think about one point of origin, and in this case it's rather simple, it's mostly European countries, but there must be also the end uh, point, which are the locals. And I was wondering to what extent cultural diplomacy worked or not uh, looking at local Palestinian and Jerusalemites. I think that was really the first question we had in mind when we started to organize in Leiden. And it's not you know, without reason that the first part of our book is about this, uh, I would say, uh, production and appropriation of cultural diplomacy by Arab Palestinian. And I think, I don't remember the exact title, but Sarah, um, uh, signed the, the introduction of the first part, and it's indigenizing cultural diplomacy with a question mark. So, yeah, the question is fundamental and absolutely logical. When we speak about cultural diplomacy in the paradigm of uh, relational history, of course, we want to know uh, the other part of the question. You are absolutely right. So, is there something like that? Yes. <laughs> I mean, the volume was very clear about that, but how can we tackle that? Um, there would be many uh, elements, but um, because there's not one definition of cultural diplomacy, the way to use more diplomatic channel whether they are you know, linguistic, cultural, uh, political, uh, economic with a political goal at the end, is something absolutely clear for many elites, because now we are, of course, dealing with an elite phenomenon. And at that time, uh, and more so during the 30s, uh, there is a clear goal of 
For example, promoting an idea of an Arab holy land, uh, very clear in the mind uh, of many actors. They also go as far as envisaging the modalities of this diplomacy. Um, and well, some of them, many of them are multilingual, so they know how to adapt to certain audiences. Um, the range of action are really important. I mean, Mizari talked, you know, about the fair. Um, there, are, there are many, many aspects. One of them is, of course, to go um, via trips to Europe and to promote via visit uh, this Palestinian cause, if we speak about the 30s and uh, Palestinian Arab nationalism. But there's not only this aspect, but this aspect, for example, is extremely important. And so um, when you have, you know, uh, Gregorius Adja going from one city to another city in France, adapting uh, his speeches to different audiences, knowing, presenting a certain aspect of this so-called Holy Land, uh, you do have a cultural diplomacy in the sense that they understand this will be very efficient. And then going back to Palestine, they also have a sense of the modalities on site, how to then react. But many face the problems we know in the political history of the 30s, of efficiency, etc., repression, occupation. So I would say um, cultural diplomacy is both an indigenous one and a European one, of course. Um, if we just give one very clear example, this language cultural diplomacy would have never uh, functioned if you don't have people wanting you know, to learn these languages, to make a language alive via literature, salon, exhibition, uh, music, concert. Um, and these communities, if, if you also take, you know, the procession during uh, the Palm Sundays, for example, in, in Jerusalem, then you also have a diplomacy. They know reporters from all over the world are there, and there is like with Nabi Musa, as you showed also in this podcast, an agenda, a political agenda uh, that is a diplomatic one because they will not, for some of these uh, Christian actors, if we take only those ones, acknowledge uh, the, you know, the journalists that this is a diplomacy towards this nationalism, but they are using all the channels and all the modalities to reach their goal. So in this sense, we thought it's, a, it's an interesting concept to dig in, yeah. And it is indeed a fascinating concept, one that uh, has a lot of different interpretations. I have a questions about more the contemporary. I was wondering if you can see still a sort of a cultural diplomacy employed by uh, the Catholic Church in Palestine and Jerusalem in the 21st century? And if so, how is it deployed and how does it work? There are many, many elements coming to mind. 
um, the first um, the first element, probably the the one I know the best from the archives, is the French one. Yes, it's a super active diplomacy. I think beyond you know everything you saw about Chirac and Macron and uh, their visit, their relation with the church. Okay, but from only an educational point of view, you have today. Um, Catholic agencies like, for example, Réseau Barnabé, who is in uh, Saint-Germain-des-Prés, extremely active also financially to support. So I, I'm not a specialist. I'm just looking now with you into a more contemporary situation. But I did check uh, also their action and I discussed with them. They have an agenda to support Christian communities, they have a definition, you know, of this support that is very much inspired by some of the missionaries of the beginning of the century. So, for example, the notion of example within a more Muslim majority, how education can change on the ground, the coexistence between Christian and Muslim, for example. This is one of their big uh, aspect, but also uh, how to develop education in rural Palestine. That's also part of uh, their agenda. So you have a diplomacy that is active towards uh, institution within the Vatican, then national Catholic institution, for example, in France. Um, and you also have uh, a lot of movement between uh, Palestinian communities and, well, if we take the case of France, France today, within this type of action. So inviting young Palestinians to spend the summer uh, in France, coming regularly for Christmas, maintaining the idea that Christmas should be celebrated in spite of uh, occupation in in Bethlehem. So there is a lot going on, but financially, we are not speaking about um, massive action. No, but this, this is continuously uh, done since, um, well, in fact, since uh, the creation of the State of Israel. And lately, they are affiliating themselves with certain branch of Catholicism in France. And so there is a kind of, I would say, revival of interventionism in Palestine. So Palestine is, for a certain type of French Catholicism, uh, a land of mission. We can say it's much more complicated, of course, than that. And there is a lot of different colors uh, in this type of uh, expression. But uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's very vivid. That's for sure. And if we if we look into missionaries, we evoked, for example, in this podcast, if we take the Dominican, a father of the Ecole Biblique, well, Réseau Barnabé, for example, is also active promoting um, all the phototechs, so the old photos of the Ecole Biblique recently by the father uh, Jean-Michel de Tarragon. And so they distribute uh, in France uh, several volumes of these photos. They organize exhibition. 
and their agenda is both uh, turned towards um, Catholic institution on site in uh, Jerusalem and Israel for Nazareth, for example, and uh, Palestine, but also in France. If you look into how uh, they are very active in certain regions more than others, uh, by the way, like in Bretagne. So you have, for example, uh, this diplomacy is the photos of the beginning of the century and the 20s. Lately, they had an exhibition on education and nationalism during the mandate that they exposed in several uh, churches in France so that people could be aware of the situation while they go uh, to church. So it's a kind of religious diplomacy and educational diplomacy uh, uh, in that sense, I think, yeah. But I'm not a specialist. <laughs> you may not be a specialist, but I wanted to ask you about pictures and imaging because in recent mm -hmm. time you are published a number of works dedicated to mm. imaging, so sort of the image mm. of Palestine, but also imagining uh, Palestine. I was wondering to what extent and what is the role of photography, uh, again, filling the gap between languages and cultural diplomacy. Is photography mm. just a, a way of selling Palestine or there's something more linked to it? Uh, I will answer as an historian because I will remain an historian. So... I am not versed into uh, tackling photography as, you know, people, wonderful colleagues like Ariela Azule are, or Sari Zadaniri, uh, not at all. You know, I'm, I'm much more at ease with textual archives, but I was always fascinated by uh, photography. I think because I started uh, in Hebron with a, a big problem of preserving these photographies in the work archives. Uh, and for me, it was like an initiatic trip within these work archives in, in Hebron. How do you access them? Why photography is much more dangerous, I was told, than text, you know? So there, there was a whole logic of approaching that. And I think the last years, um, I was obsessed by first the question of preservation and then the question of how, who is behind these photographies? So working with um, Norig Neveu and Jean-Michel de Tarragon, for example, lately, uh, I was wondering how did they perceive the society around them, these Dominicans? And beyond, you know, uh, being a selling point, of course they were, uh, there would be much to say about the evolution during the 30 years you know, of the interwar period on what we can see and how photogra photographers, and in my case, mainly uh, missionary photographers, evolve. And so you see them, um, well, it's a bit you know, reductive, but at the beginning, they hardly see people around them. But at the end of the period, they are taking many photos about uh, local festivals, uh, tetris, uh, recipes, uh, political 
events, the big Arab revolts around their buildings. Uh, so, and the way they are taking this uh, photograph in a very spontaneous way, and then the way they preserve them, um, I think is telling us a lot about how looking at the Holy Land is evolving very much during the interwar period. So without being, you know, too, yeah, reductive, I think this is the main idea I took on from this photography um, analysis the last uh, years. I'm not an expert either, and I was like, uh, enjoy listening to Sari, Sam Nassar and mm -hmm. others, because I think they really can offer a, a, a different kind of picture of Jerusalem and, and mm -hmm. of Palestine through uh, this, this material, uh, which mm -hmm. for many, like myself, is just a picture, and I'm very fascinated by some of the details, but it's the reading of what's behind that, that I think it's very, very important. Mm -hmm. I have one last question. And it's very much about your uh, upcoming book, Oriental Brothers, Arab Catholics, Languages, Identities in Palestine, 1918-1948. Can you give us a preview of your upcoming book? Yep. <laughs> I, am, I am still uh, writing some parts of it. But the idea of uh, Oriental Brothers uh, started, I think, five years ago before I was granted uh, the project Crossroads, so I, I didn't get to finish it. But the idea is to focus on the complex uh, relationship between language, religion, identity, and diplomacy. Here we are again, in this so-called Holy Land, but through the, I would say, repositioning of Arab Catholics. This is you know, my main entry at different uh, scales, so micro, meso, and macro uh, level. And so I started by thinking that, you know, this language and cultural agenda, uh, mainly in Jerusalem, is better known by other school. But in fact, these brothers, as the Vatican, because this is coming from an expression from the Vatican, negotiated very much uh, their identification, their nationalism, and both at a regional and a transnational level. So I would say this book, uh, I intend to consider the well, first, the British mandate uh, in Palestine as an internationalized uh, node uh, within a transnational framework. I mean, that's obvious from the crossroad uh, uh, different publication. But I want to appreciate how I would say complex language and uh, cultural interactions uh, produced new modes of uh, modernity that I will try to define in the book. And I think what was really appealing to me when I started with the idea of the book was to bring the study of uh, language into the historical field. And I think it's coming from the fact that I worked with Wilhelm Freihoff uh, a lot lately uh, with the collection Languages and Culture in History. But because, well, language, you know, was a very poor topic in this uh, cultural history, 
but we now have Babel in Zion from Yorah Alperin, and also from an ideology about language uh, point of view, you know, uh, following Ursula uh, Schaeffer distinction. So I found myself with these Arab Catholics, uh, a group that many call a minority, and I will try to define that, uh, who were, who remain, let's say, understudied when you go out of these religious studies and theology uh, approaches. Um, so I thought I want to tackle their various uh, loyalty, linguistic battles, uh, early cultural diplomacy, we just mentioned that, for example, and also their, their link uh, with imperial debate and their um, communities of Arab Palestinians uh, abroad. So I, I remain in this, I will try, <laughs> in this relational uh, history approach but moving you know, beyond this lacrimose history of a golden past for Christian in the Holy Land, and also very, I think, simplistic, uh, well, approach and presentation of these Christian Catholics as mainly agent of cultural imperialism or of the Holy See. Um, and I, I, I want to show, you know, the, well, their transnational thought on Palestine as well, uh, and how they were deeply rooted and uh, caught up with several uh, overlapping identification and, and loyalties. So I hope <laughs> we'll succeed to, to convey this message. This was Karen Sanchez, Associate Professor at the University of Leiden and author of the upcoming book, Oriental Brothers, Arab Catholics, Languages, Identities in Palestine, 1918-1948. Karen, thank you so much. Thank you very much, Roberto. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to support the podcast, please share it with others on social media or leave a rating and review. To catch all the latest, follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Jerusalem Unplugged. Thanks, and I'll see you next time. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com.